and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm pleased to welcome Lawrence Lamer to the program today. Larry is a journalist and author with quite an accomplished body of work under his belt. His journalism has appeared in publications including Harper's, The New York Times Magazine, and Newsweek. His books have covered gritty topics like coal mining and lynching, political titans like the Kennedys and Ronald Reagan, and the brightest stars in the arts, including Johnny Carson, Ingrid Bergman, Truman Capote, and now Alfred Hitchcock, in the recently released book, Hitchcock's Blondes, The Unforgettable Women Behind the Legendary Director's Dark Obsession, which is published by G.P. Putnam's Sons. Lawrence, for many men, our relationships with our mothers are prologue for our romantic relationships with women. How did Alfred Hitchcock get on with his mother? Well, you know, it's the one romantic idea in Freudian psychology, that if you love your mother, for example, if a woman loves her father, she'll be able to love someone else. And I remember when I went through a divorce many, many years ago, I went to the psychiatrist for one, once a week for a year, okay? I just had such trouble getting over that. And the last thing he said to me was, uh, Larry, if you remember one thing, next time marry a woman who loved her father. And I was dating this woman then. I went out to Karen for dinner. I said, Karen, what do you think about your father? She said, I hate the SOP. I hate him. I saw I checked that relation so often. My wife of 37 years adored her father, and she loves me very much. Hitchcock had a very troubled relationship with his mother. I, every night he had to stand at the foot of her bed. He really didn't like her. When she died, any woman that was in his movies was unpleasant. Any mother, sorry, any, not any woman, but any mother. The mothers are bad. I mean, the worst was in, was in Notorious, the mother of the Nazi spy. She's worse than the spy himself. She's just a monster. Oh, poor Claude Rains. Yeah. <laughs> he could have done better. So what do you think was the motivation behind his mother's difficult relationship with her son? I know I don't know about her background. I'd have to, I didn't study that. But uh, you know, she's a very difficult woman. Hitchcock said that if he hadn't, married Alma Revel, his wonderful wife who devoted herself to him. He said he would have, he might have become quote unquote a puff. So who knows? He clearly had gay tendencies that he dealt with. Another part of him. And and while we're on that subject, gays in his films are all bad people. There's not a single positive gay person in any of his movies. And so you think that was kind of fighting against his own urges he may have had. He was trying yeah. to exercise those. Yeah, that, that's what I think. Did he ever have any romantic entanglements before he met Alma Revel? No. No, that was his first time. He was a virgin. And she was actually ahead of the game on him when it came to making movies, wasn't she? She was an immensely talented woman. I mean, she was gotten the film industry early when she was 16. I mean, she, she was a writer, a potential director, extremely talented. But she chose to devote her life to his career. And without her, he never would have become what he became. Is there any indication of why they didn't find a kind of a romantic contentment in their marriage together? Well, he said he was impotent. That didn't help. And he was obsessed with these other women, with these blonde actresses. Not in any kind of relationship. He'd have a really true sexual relationship or love relationship with them, but he was obsessed with them. And is there any speculation on where that obsession had its basis in? Well, part of it certainly is a relationship to his mother. And, you know, it's a deep psychological problem this man had that he turned into his art. In other words, he was a voyeur. In every sense, he was a voyeur. And he found in filmmaking the way to take that and turn it into not what a problem, but the essence of this life of magnificent creative achievement. I mean, you go on Amazon Prime and pluck in the name Hitchcock, 
And there are over 40 Hitchcock films that you can see today, starting in the 20s and silent films. Do you think our current tendency to go to therapy and be more forthright with our fears and, and problems that we have in our psyches has led to a diminution of the art that we make? Well, I don't see so. It's just a different kind of art. I don't think so at all. I mean, there are wonderful films being made now of all sorts. I mean, I saw this Polish film two nights ago on Netflix, one of the best films I've seen in Europe. He was a romantic film, just a great Polish film. It's Love is in the title, that's all I remember. But boy, it's something everybody should watch. Well, they have kind of a, a repressive government in Poland right now. So, I mean, that leads to great art as well. Well, it's great. It's just one. Well, you can say that, but the Nazis make much great art. They destroyed it. You take, you know, this is a little bit silly, but you take away one L from Alma's last name and Revel becomes Revile. Right. And I think Revulsion can be as big a motivator in our our lives and our psyches as much as a compulsion will. Do you think there are any revulsions that were driving Hitchcock? He had a problem with human beings, right? He really thought of actors as as pieces he moved along the chessboard. He he just wasn't capable of uh, much real intimacy with people. And it seemed you mentioned his family status as lower middle class, and there was a great deal of status anxiety about slipping back down into the working class. Do you think that kind of influenced the way he interacted with specific performers because they had more modest backgrounds, so he had to kind of assert dominance in the pecking order? You know, England is the most class-conscious society in the Western world. You hear somebody's accent, and you know where they come from. And it's the silliest thing in this country where we hear a British accent and people, most people don't know what the hell it is. It could be a Cockney accent, but the Americans think, wow, he's an upper-class Brit. He's not at all. But sure, sure. And he used that. He treated people, he treated these actresses based on their class background as much as anything else. When Kim Novak came, he would have them for lunch. That was the ritual. And he treated each one of them differently. When Kim Novak came in, he showed her his art, okay? He brought out these bottles of wine to just show that he was this uh, cultured person and basically she wasn't, and to intimidate her. Show her who was boss. Yeah. Early on, he wanted to get involved in movies. He thought he could do a better job writing the title cards for silent films, and it was ironic then that his orientation in later filmmaking was such strong a visual component over dialogue oftentimes. It was really interesting that it was title cards that got him into the business. Well, he's basically a silent filmmaker. Yeah, he can have this dialogue that's on there. but And that was part of his greatness. It began in the silent era and went on for 50 years longer than anybody. So that's what his films were. He didn't like long speeches. He, he wanted to show. He was a director of scenes, of great scenes. And in, in 1979, the AFI tribute to him they showed one great scene after another through the evening, and that displayed his greatness as, as much as it could be displayed. Now, there was a blonde woman behind the scenes that made a, a huge impact on his work, and especially in coming to America, and that was Joan Harrison, a writer and producer. Yes, yes, yes. And there's a wonderful book about her. Phantom Lady by Christina Lane. And I think you interviewed her. Yes, I did. It was and, a, fabu- <laughs> a fabulous book and a fabulous interview. Well, first of all, is there more noble reason to write a biography than to rescue somebody from obscurity and put them in a place they deserve, you know? And she's funny. She teaches at the University of Miami. On the 18th, I'm doing an event in Coral Gables where we're going to show To Catch a Thief, and we're going to be talking to each other that evening. 
went and watched one of Harrison's later movies after she had left Hitchcock called Ride the Pink Horse. Oh, I never saw that. And it's set down in Mexico. I think they filmed uh, it in New Mexico, but uh, it is a fabulous movie. It's got a fairly suggestive name there, but right, right. It was, it was quite a good film. Uh, and I remember Dr. Lane saying that she thinks that Harrison may have kind of set the archetype for those actors that he pursued for his movies. Ha, huh, I don't know about that, but she was extremely important in his life, and, and he treated her well. She was like a member of the family. They went on the Queen Mary to the United States. I mean, she was with the family all the time and had a great relationship with both of them. She was the one staff member they brought with her to America. She started as a low, low secretary and worked her way up. So Hitchcock was capable of, of working well with women on times. Yeah, she was a, a terrible secretary, I remember Lane saying, and that Hitchcock at least recognized that she had other talents that could help out his productions. Well, I'm sure he hired in part because she was very, very attractive. Yeah, she was not a shrinking violet in any way. Right, right. Who do you think the first actor in his productions was the first archetypal Hitchcock blonde? I guess it depends how you define it. Could be June Tripp, who was in The Lodger. That was the first one, but she wasn't quite a blonde. Madeline Carroll is the British actor. In the early 40s, was one of the biggest stars in, in Hollywood. She was starred in The 39 Steps and Secret Agent. And she had a time. He mistreated her. He mistreated her terribly. When she did 39 Steps, in part of it, she and Robert Donay are handcuffed together. And so they both arrived the first day. They'd never met him before. And they walk on the set. And the first thing he does, he handcuffs them. It starts pouring water over them. It makes them sit there for several hours. They both want to go to the bathroom, and they use euphemism to say they want to go to the bathroom. He doesn't want to let them up. Well, and he seemed to have contempt for method acting, but it seemed like he was trying to get them in a, in a, a space via the method right there. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, I think that's true. He thought you could, to pretend to this person was unnecessary, he thought you could just you just get up there and do it. Now, I remember hearing someone say that 39 Steps was his, like, big splash into entertainments, that he was looking for a, a nice action picture entertainments. How do you think his approach to film changed when he, he came to Hollywood? Well, first of all, early on, he'd go to the, the first movie palaces in London and other places, and he'd see that most of the audience is female. He knew that they either on their own, they're with their husband or lover. It was a woman you generally had brought them to that, wanted to go to see that movie. So he knew he had to make films that one way or another would please women, and he had to have women in his films that uh, that the audience liked. That didn't change when he came to the United States. I, I don't think too much changed. I mean, look, this man made these dark, ironic films full of humor. That's what he was comfortable with making. He never tried to move beyond that, okay? He never tried to do Lawrence of Arabia or the, On the Waterfront, something like that. He made these same kinds of films all the time. And you can see a commonality from the early British films to the American films. I don't think if you're asked where were they made, you wouldn't see something specifically British or American about them. He just did his thing. There was something that seemed to tie him and Ingrid Bergman together, and they shared the fact that work was their life. And it seemed everything else was secondary to the work. Yeah, and with Ingrid, that was the way she stopped from being depressed. I mean, don't you know a lot of people like that? They just have to constantly be busy. I mean, Hitchcock was that way. He had to, when he was doing one film, he was planning the next one. He had to jump right into it. He just couldn't stand any time without work. She was the same way. She had a very troubled marriage. She had one affair after the next. And she just had to go be busy. Her husband, Peter Lindstrom, 
who I knew very well and would come to our, I did, I did a book about Ingrid Bergman. He would often come to our home in Santa Monica once a week. When he was a medical student at the University of Rochester in upstate New York, she would come to, and the, and the movie magazines just loved it, that here's this real American family with husband living in, in Rochester and the movie star husband coming to visit. Well, she'd come and she loved the food up there and to see her daughter for a while. But boy, then she was out of there. She just couldn't stand to sit there without being busy. Rochester was the home of Kodak. Yes. Cameras, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Kind of ironic that the, the big film company is there. <laughs> right, right. So you did that book about Bergman. It was published shortly after her passing in the mid-80s. In your research for this book, did you uncover anything new that you hadn't uncovered before in the previous research? No, but I just had such a vast amount of research for that one. I basically used that research. And I knew all the people. I interviewed everybody. Interviewed, you know, of course, Peter and everybody close to him, including Fellini. I, and it, it's funny. I was, I was in Rome, and my wife is from Serbia, and she knew Italian. So I go to interview Fellini, and he's great Fellini. He plays this Fellini with all these jokes and everything else. He's wonderful. And he said, would you like to interview my wife, Giulietta Massini, famous actress with those incredible eyes? I said, yes, I'd love to interview her. And so they arranged into their apartment in Rome. And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be unbelievable. Fellini with his imagination. Imagine what this apartment is going to like. I go to the apartment. And it's the most bourgeois apartment with these flower prints on the wall. And my wife is there. My wife is supposed to translate. And my, we sit in the sofa and I sit in one end. My wife's Italian isn't good enough, or Julieta, and I, anyway, she doesn't think it's good enough. So we do the interview in French. I know French, so we do the interview in France. And when I interviewed Fellini, his secretary had been the interpreter, including his, his secretary was his mistress. It was very obvious. Well, I, I wanted to thank the secretary for being the interpreter. So I went over back to his office. I didn't even want to see Fellini again. I wasn't, wasn't interested in that. I just wanted to give her the box of chocolates. And I walk in there, and there's Fellini. And he's no longer playing the great Fellini. He's his henpecked husband, whose wife is irritated that my girlfriend didn't speak the proper Italian. He went on and on, just so sorrowful. It was very interesting that her first husband was a, a strapping doctor and very accomplished in his field. And super athletic, good-looking man. And then Roberto Rossellini, who super talented, but not the most handsome guy on the face of the planet. Happily, women aren't as interested, the most places, in my experience, women are not as interested in how good-looking a man is as a man is interested in how good-looking a woman is, okay? She didn't care. She thought he was shot as a great director. And he was a seducer. He was a seducer in word. Peter was a man of great morality. He was kind of a pain sometimes and arrogant, but he was a very moral person. Rosalini definitely was not. And so not just sexually. And that's the problem with the United States. When you ask somebody, what are your morals, okay, in the United States? You know, well, first of all, you ask a Frenchman, what are your morals? And he goes on with a lengthy discourse about religion or philosophy or sociology, okay? He goes on and on. Ask an American what are his morals, and he talks about his sex life. I haven't read extensively about Bergman, but I was surprised to learn about her German problem prior to the making of Casablanca. Well, she was half German. She was half German. Her mother died when she was young, and she had all these German relatives. She spent the summer in Germany. She was fluent in German. She made films for the German film company. 
that summer in 1939, when World War II started, she was supposed to be in Berlin making a film, but the problem with getting the money she needed, which she was supposed to get, she wasn't there. If she had been there, she wouldn't have come to the United States. She would have been a German actress, and she never would have made Casablanca, that great anti-Nazi film. Hitchcock had worked with the Germans, too, early on in his silent career. Well, in the 30s, the Germans, these are the greatest filmmakers in America. And German Expressionism, he was there, he learned so much of his filmmaking came from it. There's so many great, like M with Peter Lorre, who then starred in Secret Agent, along with Madeleine Carroll. So, yes, the Germans did fabulous work until they were destroyed by the Nazis. So were Dutch angles really Deutsch angles? You got it, yes. <laughs> what was it about Grace Kelly that made her the ideal symbol for him in the movies they made together? Look, she had this ethereal beauty. And that's why it's, it was so surprising. Even to me, it was surprising how sexual she was. I mean, look, if a man sleeps with a bunch of women, he's a stuck. If a woman sleeps with a bunch of men, she, she's a slut, right? That's the way we traditionally see things. And I, in my book, I tried to deal with the sex life of these women with the same way I deal with it a man. I don't find. So, so she liked to sleep with a lot of men, all power to her. It was just fine with me. But she had that ethereal look, and that's what he liked. But when, when the first film she did... Dial in for is it Diamond Promoter? No, 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 no. Before that, with... Um, high Noon? High Noon, I'm sorry. In High Noon, she plays this kind of mousy-looking Quaker woman, okay? And she was wonderful, and that's what she's supposed to be. And she just was terrific at it. And Hitchcock saw it, and he didn't like it. He wanted her in North by Northwest to be this very sensual, sophisticated woman. And the MGM, the got her this wardrobe. He didn't like it. He took her to Berggarf Goodman's in New York and spent half a day choosing her wardrobe for her. He wanted her to look a certain way, and she did. And that was just a measure of this man. He cared about every detail in the film. She came from money, but the family was nouveau riche, and she had her own class anxiety that came from her father. Yes, and I think, you know, it's funny because I think that's so much a crucial part of how we are as people. I mean, my mother... She was one of seven. Her father was a chauffeur, and she was the only one in the family to go to college. She went to the University of Chicago on a scholarship where she met my father, who was a graduate who there actually ended up as a professor at the University of Chicago. And she was always anxious about that. She was always somewhat insecure about that. It just always troubled me. But that's her. That was her. So Grace... The old line Philadelphia families carried only about coming, having a wasp background, the wealth that went back generations. They were Irish Americans. They were Catholic. That was, that was a strike against them. And it was a big strike, a big strike against them. We talk about anti-Semitism now in the 20th century. Well, anti-Catholicism was almost as strong. And Hitchcock's family had some Irish roots as well. They sure did, which they wanted to get away. Nobody wanted to be Irish. It's funny because I did a book, The Kennedy Women. I spent five years doing a 900-page book. And a lot of it dealt with the time when they were in, when Joe Kennedy was ambassador to the court of St. James. And his daughters were there at that time. And I interviewed all these upper-class British women who would have been terrible snobbish boars except for World War II when they went out and they worked, you know, in factories, they were trying to break codes. They did all these things. But when I would go to interview them, inevitably, they would ask me, what is your background? Where are you from originally? My family's originally from Germany, and I said that. The reason they asked, because they despised the Irish. And as soon as I said that, they started putting down the Irish. And that's one of the big hatreds in Britain, or it was. It seemed 
that Eva Marie Saint was the one of these archetypal Hitchcock blondes that had the best attitude and was able to have a happy life after working with him. Well, and before, look, she was a calculating woman, okay? And a measure of her calculation is that nobody knew how calculating she was, okay? As a young actress, she starts succeeding in, in television. She has a little apartment in New York, and she's lonely. She wants to get married. She chooses the man she's married. She doesn't want to marry an actor. That's not going to work. She marries this young producer, and they're totally devoted their entire lives. They're all many years of their marriage. They had a wonderful marriage, and she also wanted a certain life. She wanted a family life. So once she had kids, she made one film a year, and she and her husband and the kids each summer would go to the East Coast and do summer stock. So she had a very happy life, and she's 99 years old now, and she lives by herself in an apartment on Wilshire Boulevard in L.A., and when her daughter learned that I was going to say that in my book, she wasn't happy. She thought I was saying she was a bad daughter. She's not a bad daughter at all. When I'm 99, I hope if I could live by myself in an apartment, I would much prefer that to living with my daughter. So that's the wonderful thing about this woman. She just really is quite incredible as far as I'm concerned. And it seems that later performers like Kim Novak and Tippi Hedren have had difficult times after they're, they're working with. Well, I interviewed Kim Novak, and she had difficult times before. Before, Hitchcock had nothing to do with her difficult times. She was a manic depressive. She didn't think of going to a therapist until she was out of the business. But she was deeply troubled. And she would, on the set, she wouldn't come out of her dressing room and think people would think how arrogant she was. She didn't come out because she could hardly move. That's how sick she was. So no, she continues to struggle with this, her ups and downs. And she deals with it by knowing no matter how down she gets, that sooner she'll come up. That's the way she deals with it. But dealing with someone such as Hitchcock, who had so many problems of his own, that was not an ideal situation for her. No, and he, he didn't treat her well. Every one of these actresses, he'd bring them for a luncheon, the traditional luncheon to their house in Bel Air. And he treated each actress different. With Ingrid, it was like his dear friend. With Grace, it was like his upper-class person that was his kin. With Kim, he comes to here and he shows her the paintings on the wall, knowing she doesn't have, in his mind, knowing she doesn't have a taste to appreciate it. He shows her the crystals that she won't totally understand. He brings out the vintage wine that she doesn't understand to intimidate her, get her in the shape he needs to work with her. So you seem to push back pretty firmly against Tippi Hedren's claims of ill treatment she claims she received from Hitchcock during their two movies together. No, I think she did receive ill treatment, but I think there's an author who took that and just expanded it and, and made that, that Hitchcock was just, just a singularly dark character. And I don't think that, yes, he mistreated her. But you don't think as it's as extensive as has been claimed in the press recently? Yeah, this is what the press does. They take this one little, what's, we're in, in Gulliver's Travels, he's in this land where he's this tiny thing, and he's on this woman's breast, this beautiful woman's breast. And he just sees the hair and, this, and it just stinks, okay? That's what we do to people. I've heard it said that politics is show business for ugly people. Uh, Have you found that in, in researching the Kennedys and now Truman Capote and now Hitchcock and, and the women in his movies? Do you think there's some truth to that? Well, politics is show business. And we've seen what's going on recently, and especially in House Republicans. Uh, this isn't about legislation. This isn't that you and I think politics should be about. It's showbiz. 
I mean, Matt Gates, he's show, he's in showbiz. He should go to Hollywood and star in a, in a Hollywood series. That's what he is. Not a real politician as we know it. And things don't get accomplished. That old adage about there are the workhorses and the show horses. It's the workhorses that get things done. Now, several years ago, you published a book about the history of Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's estate. Did you see any boxes stacked up while you were down there investigating? By the way, I've been banned from Mar-a-Lago for life because of that book, which I take as an honor. I should have a badge saying that. But I would go there. I'd go and sit there, and I have a close friend who was a member, a couple of friends, or several members, and I'd go and sit maybe when he was president, maybe 10 feet away from him for dinner. He'd come in. You know, you think a president is so busy, he's going to have to eat and get back to his work. This guy would have four-hour dinners. Table he wanted was a relatively small table with space just for he and Melania and a couple of others. And all during the evening, people would keep coming up and sit there for a while. He gets bored easily, and he'd get bored with them, and the next one would move on to the next one. Speaking of four-hour dinners, there was a dinner you described that Hitchcock had three steaks and three desserts in the course of one dinner. And I know he was, you know, very portly, but I'm a big guy myself and I cannot imagine eating that much food. Well, I said that that was, that's what this person wrote. And that's what happens with the media, right? That story is told and that becomes a part of him. And he went to Hollywood for the first time. And what do people think about it? They don't think about he's a great director. They think he eats too much. Going back to the idea that the actors were just pieces for him to move around on screen. And he would say things dismissive like, it's just a movie, but it's so obvious that he didn't believe that. Oh, that's a great point. He didn't believe that at all. That was, again, a just a way to manipulate. He manipulated. He was the king. He was the king on the set, and he controlled every aspect of it. I mean, this, everything on the set, every chair, every image, every, every bit of music, everything he controlled. A lot of directors don't do that, but he did. As I've mentioned, you've written about the Kennedys, you've written about Truman Capote, you've written about Ingrid Bergman, now Hitchcock, you've written about a lynching in Mississippi. What do you think are the through lines that are common in all the work that you've done over the years? Well, first of all, I'm stupid. If I, if I was smart, I'd do what John Grisham does. Every year I'd write a book, the audience he's built, they'll know it, they'll identify with it, and they'll like it. I, each time, it's a totally different subject. It's great for me. It's interesting. But each time I've got to build up my audience. And the commonality is they're subjects that fascinate me. And I can work very hard because I love doing it. The project I'm working on right now as I'm sitting working on it today is uh, Andy Warhol and his muses. It's the last part of this trilogy of creative geniuses and the women around him. And I just get up every day fascinated with it and excited about what I'm doing. And it seems like these three men had such complicated relationships with women and kind of the concept of femininity. Yes, they sure did. Of course, it evolved more with Warhol, but Warhol, Warhol was a voyeur. He was at an orgy. He was standing there on the side watching it. He didn't want to take part. His pleasure was in watching. They kicked him out. I remember seeing one interview probably in the late 80s with him, and I don't know if he was on a substance or something, but he just said several times, I like candy. Yeah, he, over and over. he would say these provocative things. An axiom is a fool's wisdom. Have you been to the museum in Pittsburgh? Have I ever spent a week there? Oh, wow. I, I spent a, a full day there, but I couldn't do yeah. it a whole week. I, I was really impressed with he did some illustrations early on for children's books that I saw there, and I was, I was very impressed with his abilities in that. 
Oh, he had a far range of abilities. But his number one ability was promoting himself. He's a genius at that. I mean, his most recent biographer compares him to Michelangelo. I don't quite buy that. But I did enjoy the live video feed from his grave site that the, you uh, see in the lobby. I thought that was a very nice concept. Yeah. Well, uh, when can we expect to see the Warhol book come out? In a couple of years. And I've got unique information. I've got stuff that no, it's the best research I've ever had in my life by a long shot. It's just absolutely unique. And I just wanted to share with you, a friend of mine is a huge Johnny Carson fan and absolutely uh, loves your book on Carson. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. And he's a huge Warhol fan. He was the uh, one I went to Pittsburgh with to see the Warhol Museum. So oh, really? Yeah. He's going to be really happy to hear about this. Well, it's a terrific museum. Well, Lawrence, I want to thank you so much for sharing some time and your new book with us on Book Talk. It was, it was this was time. great fun. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Lawrence Lamer is the author of Hitchcock's Blondes, The Unforgettable Women Behind the Legendary Director's Dark Obsession, which is published by G.P. Putnam's Sons. I'm Stephen Ussery. And this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.